0: Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy graziani Fossbinder, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. I'm ever so happy to welcome Christy Warren to the Morning Glory Project. Christy is a retired fire captain from the Berkeley, California Fire Department with 25 years of service as a first responder. In 2014, she was diagnosed with PTSD and struggled through the shame, exhaustion, and feelings of suicide to finally ask for help so that she could fight for her own recovery. In her memoir, Flashpoint, A Firefighter's Journey Through PTSD, Christy reveals with both candor and vulnerability the nearly unimaginable challenges that first responders face, the pressure they feel to be invulnerable to the physical and mental health impact of their work and the value of support, treatment, and healing for the brave people who serve. Christy, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project.
1: Oh, Thank you so much for having me. I feel very honored to be here.
0: Well, your book, Flashpoint, I have to say, it's it's been some time since I read it because I got it a couple of months ago. And the images in it still linger with me. And I'm always struck when I'm talking to firefighters and other first responders, but particularly firefighters, because there's this counterintuitive thing that most of us who are not first responders can't identify with. And that is we run away from the fire and you, you and your colleagues run toward it. So I want to ask you kind of in the beginning, what was it that drew you to be a first responder?
1: Well, I actually wanted to be a doctor first. And You know, classes are boring because it's like physics and chemistry and all that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to get my hands dirty and and kind of see something. And so uh, I took an EMT class and then I got a job one summer while I was uh, in college as an EMT. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. I I loved, I just loved the adrenaline of it, the excitement of it, the challenge of it. Like you never knew what your day was going to be like. You know, I, I like to work really, really hard. And you worked really, really hard. And, you know, we worked 48, 72. I mean, we could work five days in a row sometimes. And, you know, pushing through the exhaustion and, and pushing through, you know, all the challenges of what we saw and what we had to do, I, I just loved it. I thrived on it. And I said, forget being a doctor. I don't want to, you know, being around in a hospital is going to be pretty boring compared to this. So then I became a paramedic and, you know, just loved it even more. It was a lot more of a challenge. And then, I saw what the firefighters did and it's like, it was just a whole nother layer of challenge on top of that. And, uh, so that was my, that was my dream was Mm -hmm. to become, become a firefighter and a paramedic. And and I attained that and I, I just, I loved it. I absolutely loved it.
0: Well, the other part of the attraction, in addition to the, the work and providing the the service is just seems like an inadequate word, <laughs> but providing the the rescue care and the life saving service that first responders and particularly firefighters uh, offer is one draw. And, and like you talk about the the activity that you're a very physically active person, so mm-hmm. you are drawn to that action and that adrenaline rush kind of thing. But I also remember a scene from when you were a small kid or, or a young person anyway, watching a first responder and that there was something about that that attracted you as well.
1: Um, Is this where you're talking about being seen? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, you you see ambulances drive by or fire engines drive by and everybody stops and looks and you know what happened. And, and it's kind of like a world that we, the, you know, the rest of the world really never gets to look into or to see what's going on. And it, it was like being, being in that world, I really felt like I would be seen. I would be one of them. I'd be somebody that, you know, everybody was looking at, you know, not in terms of like, wow, look at me, but, but I was like somewhere important. I'd be somewhere important. I would be valued and, and, and really in seen.
0: And, and of course, I mean, it's natural then to assume that somebody has that has a deep craving to be seen comes from an environment in which they didn't feel seen enough.
1: Exactly. So, yeah, so I, I, growing up, I had uh, a challenging, I used to say a crappy childhood and a friend of mine kind of reframed it to call it a challenging childhood because it kind of made me who I am. And so, yeah, I had a very challenging uh, childhood. Uh, I had both parents who were very unavailable. Uh, My parents were divorced when I was four, um, you know as a real burden to them which i was told by my dad sometimes mm. and my mom was just unavailable she had her all her own issues to deal with and she drank a lot and she did a lot of drugs and i was really kind of by myself like trying anything to be seen i wasn't very popular at school and so i i really struggled and felt very alone and you know not not needed not wanted not valued. It makes perfect sense
0: then, doesn't it? To hear you see somebody doing something heroic and positive, but also in a very visible way, you know, it strikes me, you know, they, we talk about rubberneckers on the highway, yes. rubberneckers at fire scenes that there's sort of a bit of, and I don't mean to minimize the tragedy of what's going on, but there's, there's a bit of theater uh, sensation there that, that those doing those services, it's all lit up over there and we're watching that and and so it's not the worst kind of choice for a kid who doesn't feel seen to choose a heroic path to be seen by. So There's nothing evil in wanting to <laughs> wanting to be seen and recognized in that way and you certainly chose a better option than some folks do. I think some people choose entertainment or being in, literally being in a sta- on a stage and other people choose really destructive kinds of things. So I don't see that necessarily as a pathological choice on your part but there Throughout the book, there's this undercurrent, though, of always feeling as though you have to earn your way to be a living person. <laughs> you know, it's almost as if I have to earn your spot on the planet with every single rescue, with every single event, with every fire, with every rescue, with every heart attack, with every medical call. Is that Was that your sensation that you felt like you needed to, to earn your existence all the time?
1: Yeah, you're exactly right and and that's really you know, since I didn't feel valued and I didn't, you know, parents supposed to make you feel special and important and and it did. It's like every every single thing I did was about obtaining some kind of value. And the problem was was that I always kind of pushed the, you know, the I'd always um the line in the sand would always get moved. I would always be Like, you know, when I was an EMT, I would start, you know, once I kind of got good at it, I was like, oh, I'm just an EMT. I'm not a paramedic. And then I became a paramedic and I'm like, oh, I'm just a paramedic. I'm not a firefighter. And then I became a firefighter and then I was like, well, I'm just a firefighter. I'm not a driver or a captain. And I just continually would up the ante of what would make me important. So I never you know, I could never attain that no matter how hard I tried And I tried with everything I had and, you know, either I was the best or I was nothing. I was very much an all or nothing person. Right. And, you know, it's like kind of that saying, like, if you win a gold medal, it's going to make you feel better. And it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't change you at all.
0: I don't think that's at all limited to people in to first responders. I mean, I, I know people that have won prizes and people who've been awarded the top level of their profession, people that have been magnificent um, achievers in whatever they do, and they still don't feel like enough. And I like that way you describe it, you kept moving, you know, erasing the line and moving it further ahead to what you were. And even when you got to the thing that you wanted to do, which was to be captain, still that wasn't enough. So Mm -hmm. what the result of that for you, it seems, is that then it wasn't just enough to be the captain or to be the firefighter, to be the EMT, but you had to be the gung-hoest, toughest, baddest, all the way out there of whatever whatever iteration you were in. And that meant taking risks with your own safety, with your own taking injuries, subjecting yourself to more and more traumatic experiences. Can you say a bit about
1: that? Yeah, it really made me uh, just push myself a lot harder than I should have pushed myself and, you know, not giving myself a rest. And yeah, like in the book, you know, I had a um, I continued to work while having a torn meniscus and because I was just going to keep, you know, going through the pain. It's like I'm not I'm not going to take any time off and let it rest. Or, you know, I had the same thing with my shoulder. I had a torn rotator cuff that was torn pretty bad. And I just kept working through it because I was tough. Even like after I had shoulder surgery, I think I took pain meds for about a week and it's an extremely painful surgery. And when I went to physical therapy for the first time, he asked me, you know, what pain meds I was taking. And I said, I'm not taking any. And he goes, why not? He says, are you in, are you not in pain? I go, I'm in a lot of pain. He goes, and why aren't you taking any pain meds? And I'm like, because like, I I didn't know I was allowed to, like, I thought I had to, you know, tough this out. And he's just like, you're crazy. Hmm. And so, yeah, that's, it's very, very true. I just continue to, you know, my body is just absolutely thrashed and just from pushing myself through everything and, and not getting sleep and just, yeah, that's, you're absolutely right. Well,
0: and I wonder too, I'll say on the physical side, but I want to go to the emotional side of this too. Mm-hmm. But on the physical side too, I wonder being a female firefighter, if you felt a special push not to show weakness or vulnerability, to show extra strength. Was that a dynamic in your experience?
1: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. You know, I didn't, I never wanted to be or would allow myself to be like the token, you know, women firefighter that got hired due to, you know, diversity and affirmative action requirements. And so, yeah, so I, I pushed myself, I was always the last person there. I, yeah, I pushed myself as hard. And, you know, there's kind of a saying that if a man goes down in a, in a fire, they will say, wow, he gave it his all. He's a true hero. And, and, uh, if a woman can, goes down in a fire, it's easy to say like, well, you know, she gave it her best and she probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. And, mm-hmm. and I was not going to be that woman. And so when I did get PTSD, I was like, oh my God, I'm becoming that woman that I vowed I would not become. Like I'm becoming weak and I am crying and my emotions are all over the place. And, you know, nobody can see this because I have worked so hard to build, you know, a belief. I mean, I was really tough and I am really tough, but was was to build this, you know, notion that I could survive anything. And uh, so the shame that I felt and the need to contain this and not let anybody see it was, it was like, you know, life or death for me. It was like, it felt like it was my survival.
0: So let's transition over to that. The, the physical toll of this job, it's just incredible. I mean, just the lifting and the running and the, all of the dealing with obstacles and all the things that you're doing all the time subject your body to the kind of injury that it seems inevitable to me. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how anybody isn't injured doing what they do. I don't know how they aren't injured every single time, frankly. But the psychological injury is another matter too. And it goes back to that line that you drew for yourself of it never being enough that you always push the line out. And that clearly you can't rescue every single person. There are fires that are too big to battle. There are lives that are lost before you can arrive. There are circumstances and all that. But there were times when, for you in your story, that and this is the part that really moved me about your book, Christy, was that there was one rescue in particular where the person didn't make it. And that hung with you. Can you tell tell a bit about that experience not for the purposes of sensationalizing the death of this one poor human, but to say what you did with that and how, how that became, I don't know, this way that you kind of flogged yourself all the time.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I've been to so many traumatic calls and injuries and deaths and, And I I seem to have found a way to just kind of, I liken it to like, I have a box and I put the bad call in a box and I close the lid and I go on and, you know, we all have to do that or we wouldn't be able to do our job. You know, when you're there for 48 hours, if you can't put stuff away in a box and close the lid, it's going to be difficult to go to the next call and be present. So when I went on this fire, it was a fatality uh, that I feel like I made a mistake that I, I, I didn't find this person when I was asked to go find him. And I didn't consciously realize what it was doing to me, but it seemed to be the one that filled the box. It was like the lid wouldn't close and it had built enough, enough pressure that it just kind of blew all over everything. And, and all the calls that I had gone on had kind of just suddenly come bursting out. And, you know, my wife noticed at first that, you know, I was talking about this call a lot and I was like obsessing about this call and replaying it in my mind over and over about what else I could have done and I should have done. And it's, it's really the one that, you know, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm -hmm. And once that box was open, I, I couldn't close the lid again. And that really started my PTSD.
0: Well, and to, to give it some perspective too, in all probability, the way that I read this, and I'm I'm not a firefighter, so you'll have to forgive me that, that lack of knowledge, but it sounds as though no one could have found this person. It was an absurd kind of expectation, but you still felt as though you were a failure for not having rescued this individual. And no one in your group was thinking that of you. That was all inside your assessment of the situation. Everybody else was saying, "Oh." you can't rescue them all. I mean, th- this was ridiculous. So this was a, a, a self-expectation that, that you imposed upon yourself. And that, like you said, it, it kept the, the lid from the box to be able to close. And then, so here you were having meltdowns. And by meltdown, I don't mean just that you were crying. I mean that you, that you were having difficulty functioning in lots of ways. And you were crying at times that, that really startled you in a really unexpected way. And, and you weren't a natural weeper. <laughs> so <laughs> it, if it was me, I'd be weeping every day. So, you know, that, cause I'm a natural weeper, but, but for you, this was a new experience. So in addition to feeling weak, there was also this notion of, well, now I'm like the stereotype of women that might cry too easily or be overly emotional. And that really messed with your head. What were the symptoms then? that resulted when people when people hear PTSD and it's become common vernacular but post traumatic stress disorder is a specific kind of thing it's not just that you're upset about something that happened can you tell a little bit about the the kinds of symptoms for PTSD that you had
1: yeah absolutely and you're absolutely right like you know, nobody walks away from this job unscathed or unaffected or changed. It, it absolutely affects everybody. But whether you get actual uh, PTSD, and we're trying to change it to just, dis- or not from disorder to injury, because it's actually an injury. It's a physiological injury to your brain. Um, so yeah, the symptoms were, you know, like you mentioned, crying. I started crying. I never been a cry, unless I get really, really angry, then I'd cry. But other than that, I never cry. And now I was crying all the time, like for no reason. Uh, my anxiety, I started, I should stay, I started having anxiety. The tones would go off at work, and it could be for, you know, something just absolutely no big deal, a stub toe or something silly that we get called for. And, but just the sound itself would set off a, you know, physiological response through my body. Like they just mentioned, like a school bus full of, you know, five-year-old just fell off a cliff Mm -hmm. or something like that. I'd had the same response to that. Uh, I started having nightmares, a lot of nightmares. I'd wake up screaming, uh, throwing myself out of bed. Uh, Like one night I had a dream that someone had thrown a toddler in a pool and I was jumping in to save it. And I couldn't break the plane of the water in my dream. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I finally woke up and I was trying to dive through the bed that's why I couldn't like break the plane of the water. So yeah, nightmares were a real problem. Um I was really irrational. I'd get super mad at my wife or like ridiculous things. I couldn't sleep. I just, you know, except for falling asleep and having nightmares. You know, when you can't sleep, not only does it affect your brain and affect your mood and affect it's like a snowball effect. Right, but it's really lonely at two o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep and the whole rest of the world is asleep, hmm. and and it just kind of like adds to your isolation and your loneliness. And uh, so yeah, not being able to sleep is is was really difficult for s- so many reasons.
0: As you talk, I never thought of it quite this way before. About PTSD being a really lonely experience that you're so busy trying to manage your symptoms, to manage your dreams, to hide things from other people, to not have the explosions. You're so busy trying to tamp everything down that I would imagine it is an extremely isolating and lonely experience.
1: It is. It's very, very lonely. It's very isolating. And that's one of the things that makes you do too, is it makes you isolate. You don't want to be around people. You don't want to talk to people. And I think that's really, like you said, is is from like working so hard to manage it and just like people don't want to go out into crowds. You don't want to be around a lot of noise, you know, and it's all about just nothing. Like you're just concentrating so hard on like staying alive and managing your symptoms and trying to find a way to make this all go away that you just can't take any distractions at all. And yeah, you just really, it's very isolating. And you know, if you're, if you're not an exerciser, You know, like for me, I really like to run and it it could be 1030 at night and I just would be overwhelmed with symptoms and I'd be like, I have to go for a run. And my wife would be like, it's 1030 at night. I'm like, I have to go or I'm going to like blow up. So that was one of the ways Mm -hmm. you used physical
0: exercise as part of a treatment, which sometimes was also added to physical challenges. (laughs) You know, when you're recovering from physical injuries and you Mm -hmm. don't have the physical high intensity things available, that that becomes another kind of a challenge. Before we go on to kind of how you got through this, I want to ask about one more element that you that you frequently refer to in the book. And that is you talk about there being a ribbon. hmm Can you tell me about what you think of the ribbon as and, and kind of describe what that is for folks?
1: You know, the ribbon is almost like a drug. It like, you know when you're falling in love or you're really excited about something in those butterflies that you feel in your stomach and and kind of like that electricity that you feel going through you you know, going on a call would give me that feeling and I was able to like tame it. It didn't get out of control, you know, and I kind of almost look like, or think of it like that's what the rest of the population would do. You know, when they get, when that much adrenaline is dumped in them and the kind of the ribbon starts, you know, winding its way through you, you know, the kind of the rest of the world becomes overwhelmed and usually they'll freeze or you know, f- take flight. And for us, for first responders, we are able to tame that ribbon and we are able to, you know, function very well through it. And, and in fact, it gave me incredible clarity. And that, that's the time that I feel most at peace mm. and calm and quiet is when I'm dealing with some insane chaos around me.
0: Which is so contrary to how most people Feel. Most yes. people feel
1: overwhelmed by that and they,
0: they have to, to quiet everything down and that's when they're going to feel calmer. Right, But it, it's as if you, see if I can, I'm getting this right, Christy, it's as if the, the adrenaline forms this focus for you. Like it suddenly, everything else falls away and so you can focus on this one thing you have to do and you, your mind can't think of all the 10,000 other things that plague you, whether it's family history or other pain or whatever. It's like all of that disappears and you're just in the zone, as athletes might call it.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. You call it like it's in the zone or or the flow state or whatever people want to call it. But yeah, very much so. Very much so.
0: So this got very dark. Mm -hmm. So dark that it felt as though even though you were uh, getting some help, getting some therapy, getting some treatment. There was a period of time that it just didn't feel like it was going to get better for you. And you started to think about suicide. Can you tell me about that dark moment? And then what brought you out of that?
1: Yeah, I I actually had several dark moments. The big one was the one that finally made me decide to get help. Um, you know, it was like, I didn't necessarily want to die. I just wanted the pain to stop. And I wanted the shame to stop. You know, I thought, you know, when I finally kind of came to the realization that I really needed help, it was like, if I drive my car into a tree and kill myself, even if I don't kill myself, even if I just get like severely injured and I'm in the hospital, like in a coma for a month or whatever, I don't have to go back to work. And I don't have to tell anybody why I'm not going back to work. And I won't have to deal with the shame. And, you know, people, instead of shunning me and making me feel horrible, people will like be, have concern for me because I'll have like visible injuries that they can see mm-hmm. at that point, being in a coma in a month just sounded like the greatest thing on earth. Not like a vacation, an absolute vacation,
0: <laughs> like a vacation from yourself. You know, I, I just, I really wonder how many people that attempt or even succeed at if that's a weird word to say succeed at suicide but have a completed suicide and i wonder how many of them didn't want to die they just wanted their pain to stop
1: i think the majority especially when it comes to first responders pretty much all of us just want the pain to stop we don't want to we don't necessarily want to die but yeah we just can't take it anymore
0: and look how irrational the thoughts were like oh my gosh if i'm if if i'm beat to heck, and I'm in a hospital room, at least I won't, people will understand. It's like they couldn't understand the pain. It didn't felt to you as though they couldn't understand the pain. They couldn't see the psychological things, but they could understand if you were in traction.
1: Exactly. Right?
0: They could understand if you were on life support. Exactly. So tell us how how this began to turn. What What was helpful to you?
1: What really changed everything for me was I went to a retreat called the West Coast Post Trauma Retreat and you know of course it took a fight for me to get there in terms of me actually thinking that I needed to go. The way it works is there's six clients, there's six first responders who are struggling with what I was struggling with and then there's usually like 12 or 15 peers and all the peers have gone through the program and they're all first responders themselves. And then there's a couple clinicians and I sat in that room for the first time you know, thinking this whole thing was stupid and I just wanted to leave. And then looking around the room and saying, Oh my God, like I am not the only one. Look at all these people in here who've gone through what I went, I'm going through. And then my, you know, six comrades, you know, th- they're going through it right now too. And they're like regular people. And there's some, there are some tough, tough people in there, like, You know, like one of the guys in my group was, you know, he's undercover cop for many years and, you know, he was all, he was huge and strong and tatted out and just a badass. And it's like, okay, well, these people can go through this. Then maybe it's okay that I'm going through this and I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. And these people understand a hundred percent what I'm going through and I don't have to explain myself and try and convince them that this is real. And it, it it's really what changed for me and what made it possible for me to start my recovery. Hmm.
0: Seeing other people normalizing what you're going through, thinking that it's not just because I'm weak, you're looking at these, what you call badass folks, these, you know, really strong, valiant, heroic people that are broken down by what they do. You know, And this kind of segues to what I wanted to kind of end our conversation with, and before we do that, I also want to say, I'm so very glad that you got that help. And I'm so glad you are still here with us. Thank you very much. I'm glad that that became the voice of uh, of life and of love. And it has let you go on to continue to have the life with your with your wife, with your fabulous dog, with your, you know, just doing what you do. Thank you. So as we go to a close, though, if you had a magic wand... Christy, and you could change how firefighters and other first responders serve to help prevent them from having so much injury, knowing that trauma is is necessary. They're going to be exposed to things that that's just the nature of the work. But what do you think, what circumstances or what procedures do you think might make, the, might reduce the impact on them and be more preventive of PTSD?
1: First of all, we need to talk about it and need to to normalize it. You know, there's this thing it's, uh, you know, I remember being on a really horrible call that was just unbelievable. And somebody said, I, I think I even mentioned like, wow, that was unreal. And, and somebody pulled me aside and goes, Hey, are you doing all right? And I go, Oh, I'm fine. It's it's like, Oh, I'm fine. Is like a reaction. And I think a lot of people do that, but as soon as it's almost like a trigger, like I say, Oh, I'm fine. And then I, that's when I take that thing and throw it in the box. And we have to stop saying like, oh, I'm fine and maybe talk about, you know, what was so horrible about that call and make it okay to talk about that and make it okay when, especially when you start developing any signs or symptoms of PTSD to say, hey, this is starting and get help much sooner than fighting it forever. And then, you know, the, the other thing, the, the the magic wand part is sleep. We don't, first responders don't get any sleep i mean firefighters work 24 like i said 48 and normally now all the schedules are going to 48 hours on like as a minimum and but you know police officers get it too it's a a 24-hour day job and you know paramedics work 24-hour shifts and um and so yeah somebody's got to be available but but when we sleep is when our brain kind of heals and kind of goes through and cleans itself up Mm -hmm. and without that sleep your brain isn't going to like clean itself up from the trauma that we saw. I mean, they, they say trauma is like getting hit in the head of the baseball bat. It's like a literal injury to your brain every time you experience a trauma. And so if we don't get any sleep, we can't repair that. And they just add up and add up and add up. And, and that's when, and and that's when you finally reach the breaking point. And, and we don't sleep. Like I look back, you know, you're supposed to sleep eight hours a day, which is a third of the day, which is a third of your life. So by the time you turn 60, you should have slept for 20 years. And it's like, I'm sure most responders, by the time they turn 60 have slept, they're probably missing at least two thirds of that. And your brain just can't can't heal. And it's just going to cost a lot of money to do that because you you need people working 24-hour shifts. And so twenty four hours a day, and so they they'd almost have to double their you know personnel to to get that done and so I, I don't know if that'll ever happen. What really strikes me though is that you know you hear about the
0: terrible torture in p o w camps and mm-hmm. and under those circumstances, and one of the first things they do is they deprive people of sleep because it messes with your mind and it weakens you and it and it makes you more vulnerable to suggestion and all of that stuff, so sleep seems like a really important thing and, and I know it's it's money, but it's got to, it also has to cost a lot of money to have a lot of workers' comp claims and have a lot of people that serve for for X number of years until they get really good and then they have to quit because they can't go on. So I, I would imagine that there's some cost savings that could be <laughs> could be had by protecting people's sleep hours and and also like you say, making uh, making it culturally okay to talk about what you need. Well, Christy, there's so much more that I want to talk to you about and will continue to do. I really urge people to read Flashpoint, A Firefighter's Journey Through PTSD by Christy Warren. You can find out more about her by going to Christy Warren. Is it Christy It's Christy E. Warren. Christy, thank you so much for it sounds such a trite thing to say, but thank you for the service. There are there are people whose children are alive. There are kids whose parents are alive. There are people whose homes were rescued, or partly so, because of the work that you have done, and I'm grateful for that. So thank you, and thank you for sharing your story here on The Morning Glory Project.
1: Thank you so much, Betsy. It's been an honor.
0: My conversation with Christy Warren and, indeed, reading her book, Flashpoint, really brought several things to the forefront of my mind and first of all is that notion of sleep you know whatever your profession whatever your age whatever your condition sleep deprivation changes everything if you can't get good sleep if you're afraid to sleep because of nightmares if sleep is taken away because of the schedule that you serve it sets you up for being vulnerable to not just to to a trauma, because of course first responders are dealing with trauma all the time, but vulnerable that that trauma doesn't just have an impact on you, but that it becomes post-traumatic injury, as Christy was talking about. So somehow looking at, I, I wish I did have that magic wand that I offered Christy, that we could somehow change the way that our medical personnel and our first responders have a schedule so that sleep is a valued part of that schedule. You know, for athletes, it's an important part. We know that for them to be on peak performance, they have to sleep well, eat right, rest in between. Why not for our first responders? And, you know, the math of it is one thing, because it seems kind of penny-wise and pound-foolish that to save money, we work people to a point that they sustain worse injuries. It seems like we'd be paying more out in workers' comp dollars and in medical retirement because they can't sustain. So it just seems counterintuitive to me to not take care of our folks that take care of us. The other piece that really stands out in my mind, in my conversation with Christy and in reading her story as well, is when she reached that point where she thought of running her car into a tree and she realizes now looking back that she didn't want to die She just wanted her pain to stop. And when it didn't seem like there was any other way to make it stop, to die or to be put into a coma for a month felt like a vacation from herself. I really wonder, I have no way to measure this, but I wonder how many people who have ended their lives or tried to end their lives did so not because they really wanted to die, but because they saw that as the only way to stop their pain. And if we can be compassionate, loving people, if we can help people to find the resources that they need to get through what they're going through, I just can't help but believe that we would save a life and maybe lots and lots of lives. That's a worthy extra bloom to think about. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. I'm touched that you would take this time to listen to the stories that we have here. And I hope that wherever you are, that you're finding rest, that you're getting sleep, that you're getting care, and that you are able to bloom.